Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Hello, OFAD lads and lasses. This is Andrew Smith, co-host of the Once for All Delivered podcast, coming to you on a Monday with uh, some bonus content, some extra content, I guess. Uh, This is an audio reading of an article that I'm posting today on the Once for All Delivered website. It's Monday, January 15th, 2024. The article is entitled, Machen's Indebted Children, Reform Seminaries and Federal Student Loans. Now, if you want to read that article, it's available on onceforalldelivered.com, along with all the links and footnotes. Those won't be included here in this audio reading. This is just to provide audio for those who would prefer to listen in the normal podcast feed rather than read. So... Again, Machen's Indebted Children, Reform Seminaries and Federal Student Loans by me, Andrew Smith. About a year ago, I ran a piece on how various reform seminaries had taken significant federal financial aid that was made available during the COVID-19 pandemic. Millions of dollars went to schools, some of which came with potentially problematic conditions imposed by the federal government. In that article, I hinted at another piece of the federal aid puzzle that also affects seminaries, though I did not expound on it in detail, federal student loans. This is an issue that involves fewer schools, only three major reform seminaries participate, but it involves more funding over a longer period of time. The participating schools are Covenant Theological Seminary, the Denominational Seminary of the Presbyterian Church in America, Westminster Theological Seminary, and Westminster Seminary, California. Just as with the COVID aid, federal loan participation is a matter of public record. Quarterly reports show how much of each kind of federal direct loans are dispersed and through participating schools. I compiled the data of these three schools since 2020 into the following table. So just to quickly go through it. Uh, Covenant Theological Seminary in 2020 took $1,098,751. In 2021, they took $1,061,696. And then in 2022, they took $974,893. And then in 2023, $941,790 for a total over those four years of $4,077,130. Now, this does not include the fourth quarter of 2023. That data hasn't been published yet. Uh, Next, Westminster Seminary, California in 2020 took $773,392. In 2021, $611,982. In 2022, $395,368. And then in 2023, through the first three quarters, $347,851 for a total of $2,128,593. Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia in 2020 took $654,821. 
In 2021, they took $854,294. In 2022, $667,898. In 2023 through three quarters, $433,422 for a total of $2,610,435. The total for all of these schools since 2020 is $8,816,158. Again, the chart is in the article on onceforalldeliver.com. I've also included there a link to the spreadsheet where I did my calculations and to the data source if any of you would like to check them. But anyway, back to the article. Total federal loans dispersed through these schools total nearly $9 million since 2020, with at least $2 million dispersed through each school. While this is but a molecule in the ocean of total federal education lending, it likely represents a not insignificant portion of these schools' revenue and income. It is no secret that if seminaries are going to operate, they need money. Salaries must be paid, facilities must be acquired, built, and maintained. The lights have to stay on. It's not a simple or cheap enterprise. But not all money is created equally. When seminaries participate in any student loan programs, it means that students are indebting themselves to attend. This means that post-seminary life is going to require the graduate, if he graduates, to make payments which can be large and lengthy depending on the amount and terms of the particular loans. Given that seminaries are private institutions, their tuition and fees are relatively high. At the time of posting, Covenants per credit tuition was listed at $595, meaning that the full tuition cost of their 99-credit Master of Divinity, the standard educational credential for reform ministers, is $58,905. West Cal's 110-credit program at $495 per credit hour totals $54,450. Westminster Theological Seminary's 111-credit MDiv will cost $136,530 in tuition at a whopping $1,230 per credit hour. Remember, this is just tuition. All housing, books, fees, and other associated costs are not included. For students who attend full-time and in residence, this cost typically comes on top of having either no or limited paying employment. Now, there are scholarships and other financial aid to help mitigate some of these costs. Still, the fact that these loans are used means that not all of the costs are being met. For Covenant, the largest user of federal loans of the three, the equivalent to the tuition cost of 70 MDivs has been floated by federal money in the last four years. Now I have made some assumptions. Not everyone attending one of these schools is in an MDiv program and pursuing pastoral ministry. These schools all offer other degree options for other persons with other interests. But the main reason for the seminary is to train pastors, and pastors aren't exactly known for getting the biggest paychecks after they graduate. This is not necessarily the fault of churches. Many are small, have limited resources, and are doing the best they can to provide for their shepherds. 
saddling ministers with massive debt before they ever have a ministerial call, if a call even comes, raises questions of fiscal responsibility. Debt limits the ability of ministers to serve in small churches or the mission field, as these cannot pay sufficiently to service large debts. I think student debt is bad for everyone, and with very limited exceptions, no one should attend any school without a means to pay that doesn't produce a mortgage without a house. However, I have an additional and particular concern here with the federal aspect of these loans. I argued in my piece on COVID money that despite what many said and believed at the time, the money was not free. Even if there were no repayment requirements, the money came with some potentially troubling stipulations. There is never a free lunch, especially when Uncle Sam is buying. Federal student loans are quite similar. In order for a school to participate in federal aid programs, there is a lengthy and detailed application process. Among the many other stipulations for participation, the school must certify its compliance with various federal laws and regulations. I included a list of them screenshotted in the article. The particular one of concern here is Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, barring discrimination on the basis of sex. Now, this code has been interpreted by President Biden's Department of Education in light of the Bostock versus Clayton County decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to protect against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. This is despite the fact that Title IX contains no such language. It only contains language about sex. When I initially posted my findings on these student loans at these three schools and their conditions on Twitter last week, a certain former professor of mine accused me of breaking the Ninth Commandment and not having adequately done my research. It seems his primary concern centers around a religious institution exemption in Title IX. I was not, in fact, ignorant of that exemption. I did not include it in my short Twitter post because ultimately I don't believe it matters that much. Similar religious exemptions and civil rights law have already failed to protect Christian humanitarian aid organization World Vision from a discrimination lawsuit brought on LGBT grounds. In fact, the exact exemption contained in Title IX was challenged by a recent class action lawsuit. While that lawsuit failed... If recent history has taught us anything about the lawfare of LGBT activists, they'll be back. And after Christians and their institutions get buried in legal fees and court dates, all it takes is one federal judge having a bad day, and the exemption is no more. Even Religion News Service ominously reported on that class action Title IX suit that it was, quote, perhaps the first of several class action suits against religious universities, end quote. In other words, activists see the Title IX exemption as a target, and the attack on it is likely not done. Perhaps my professor and I could have had a productive discussion about whether or not the current regime will be bound by rule of law, or the adequacy of protections against the current wave of LGBT activism in the current legal environment, 
But alas, he went for the ad hominem gun instead and continued to fire it even after I provided these details. All of this to say, if the current regime seems bent on interpreting Title IX under Bostock's revisionism, and if LGBT activists are willing to do the dirty work in court, it's not hard to see these conditions and self-certifications putting participating Christian schools in a very difficult position in the not-too-distant future. If a humanitarian organization like World Vision can be a target for lawfare, there is likely nothing about a seminary that would be found more sacred. These risks, along with the aforementioned problems of ministerial debt, perhaps explain why most reform seminaries do not participate in the federal loan program and why at least one has left the program after previous participation. Okay, you say, but seminaries need to get money from somewhere. This is true. As I said in my COVID money article, the seminary's turn to government money might show a deficiency in church financial support that needs to be remedied. But it may also be that seminaries could do a better job to live within their means. The complexity and comprehensiveness of federal programs often requires staff and man hours to maintain compliance, which would be unnecessary outside of these programs. Maybe the old buildings will last a bit longer. Maybe the travel and special events can be trimmed. Maybe a direct model of denominational oversight and funding ought to be considered. Maybe churches can better train and vet prospective students so there is less work for the seminaries to do. In negative world, to borrow from Aaron Wren's taxonomy, Christians in all spheres may be called upon to make sacrifices. And even if I grant, only for the sake of argument, that debt for seminary education is absolutely necessary, this can be obtained privately, or seminaries can establish their own loan programs. Some readers may notice that this is now my third major foray into the world of seminaries and the legal and regulatory environment, after the COVID money and accreditation pieces. I can hear the questions coming now. Why do you care so much about what is going on in seminaries? The health of our churches is directly tied to the health of seminaries, and yet many of our seminaries seem to have formed some questionable entanglements with the city of man and adopted some questionable priorities. The interests of the church in modern academia are often not the same. The interest of laity in the church and the federal government are certainly not the same. I'm a pastor who wants to see strong pastors and strong churches even as the church now lives and operates in negative world. Given my previous work in government, I know how to follow public records where they lead. Why do you hate seminaries? You may ask. I don't. Pastors need to be trained and educated, and good seminaries operating on sound principles can do that job. I have financially supported good seminaries. My current calling church financially supports good seminaries. But seminaries need to be good. Shouldering pastors and churches with debt is not good. Leaving open doors for hostile governments, NGOs, and activists to influence the seminary's agenda is not good. 
Seminaries need to act in a manner worthy of the support and trust that churches and donors have placed in them. Don't you have better things to do, you may ask? Yeah, probably. Combing through government records and legal documents isn't the most riveting of work. And I'd rather be free to do ministry work and attend to other cares knowing that the seminaries are taking care of their own business. But I sense that too few within seminaries and loyal to them understand the times in which they live, the risks they face, and the blind spots they have. If we are not diligent to guard and protect the church and her institutions, we may find ourselves having lost them, as many before us have. So that is the article, Machen's Indebted Children. It is available, again, with all notes and citations at onceforalldelivered.com. Of course, as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can reach us in the usual ways. Email OFADpodcast at gmail.com or on social media at OFADpodcast. And thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once For All Delivered.